This is an ABC podcast. Oh no, don't change the dial. You're in just the right place. Science Friction with Natasha Mitchell. I can't take myself seriously. Thank you for having me. This is so exciting. I'm excited too. I mean, move over Mills and Boone. <laughs> the hot, smart scientists are in the house. <laughs> you said our love would be forever. You promised we'd be together. I mean, I love Mills and Boone. That's what I grew up reading. I definitely used to steal them from my grandma and my sister and <laughs> devour them. I, I love them so much. Your rom-com novels are, I mean, these are brainy, they are lusty, they're (laughs) rom-com, absolutely, but they are set in science labs and universities. And I just got to say, I didn't know how much I needed these books right now. I just feel like you wrote them for me, in fact. I am so glad. You know, people feel like that, that they feel like what I'm writing means something to them and that they can, you know, see themselves in what I write. It's just lovely to hear that. Ali Hazelwood, that's her nom de plume, is a neuroscientist and professor at an American university who has become a New York Times best-selling author almost overnight. Now, by day, she was working on her thesis and writing up her research, but as she says, when you're writing science, no one makes out and the ever-after isn't always happy. So, naturally, by night she turned to romance. She was this massive Star Trek fan. And then she discovered the fanfic or fan fiction scene where fans write their own subplots and sagas involving characters from their favourite books or films. And so she started to write fanfic too. And then an agent spotted her work, liked what she saw, and wham, Ellie wound up with a multi-book deal. How's that for a story? Her first rom-com novel, The Love Hypothesis, which came out last year, was a runaway success. Her second, Love on the Brain, is due out in August. And she's my guest on Science Friction today. And you write this world so well because this is your world. You're a neuroscientist, you're a professor. So what pulled you into the world of romance fiction? At the time, I was very much doing my PhD. So I was busy. It was my dissertation semester. It was the semester that I was supposed to be writing my thesis. I think I really needed a distraction or just some kind of uh, hobby that would take my mind off of academia and... um, That's kind of how it started, the writing of fiction. And I would set a lot of stories that I was writing uh, in academia because that was the word that I knew, right? So I would take characters from the Enterprise in Star Trek and I would pretend that they were university professors, (laughs) things like that. (laughs) Yeah, that's how it started. It's one thing to start dabbling with fan fiction as a distraction from writing your PhD in neuroscience, though. It's another to land an instant bestseller. Your heroines are smart, young, feminist women scientists, aka steminists. Uh, Your central male (laughs) characters are fascinating to me. They're young, 
moody, taciturn. <laughs> At first glance, they're, they're narcissist, wunderkind scientists, right? And we have all met people like this. I'm wondering how close to the bone this was for you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, definitely, that's totally true. Like, there's definitely people that I've met in STEM, especially men that felt a little bit threatened by the brilliant women around them. Not necessarily me, but, you know, I've had women mentors and I have felt like they weren't treated as well as their male colleagues, for instance. But I have to say that the main male characters that I write are very much wishful thinking. So, wouldn't it be nice if uh, these horrible STEM lord dudes uh, who look so unapproachable were actually really nice guys who actually really respect women? Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, I mean, you've got a real trope going where they're real assholes to begin with and then, and then somehow they bloom into beautiful, you know, lust yeah. objects. I'm a fan of enemies to lovers and I really went to the school of Jane Austen, so... For me, it's the Mr. Darcy arc that I kind of look for in a character. So I like these guys who seem kind of broody and haughty and, uh, you know, stuck up and they think they're better than everyone else. But then I like the idea that they meet the female lead and they realize that actually they are just in love <laughs> and that in the end... Uh, more than they want to feel superior to others. They just want to be with this person that they are in love with. So that's definitely something I like to write about. Yeah, you're a complete romantic. Her mouth was full of cotton. I, all of you are great scientists, and you'll become an even better one. The way he was looking at her, so earnest and serious, it was going to break her. Whatever this asshole said, it speaks nothing of you and a whole lot of them. His fingers shifted on her skin to weave through her hair behind her ear. Your work is brilliant. She didn't even think it through. And even if she had, she probably couldn't have stopped herself. She just leaned forward and hid her face in his neck, hugging him tight. A terrible idea, stupid and inappropriate. You just had to go and make me fall for you, she thought, blinking against his skin. You absolute ass. In the Love Hypothesis, third year PhD student Olive, she's at Stanford. She's come up with this genius test for pancreatic cancer as part of her research. There's a hidden trauma in her past and, and somehow you have her having a very good reason for spontaneously, randomly kissing the <laughs> notoriously nastiest young you know, superstar scientists in the in the faculty, Dr. Adam Carlson. How complicated did you make things for her after that? random kiss in, in a lab one night. I really like putting my characters in the worst possible situations <laughs> and I love to see them like grasp for sanity just to, to see like what is this character going to do in this incredibly improbable incredibly unfortunate situation. I think I'm a little bit of a sadist maybe. I think I just like to see <laughs> I don't know. I like to see them struggle. But all her fellow grad students hate 
Adam Carlson. He's cruel, he's rude, they're scared of him, they're angry about him, he does not treat grad students well, and yet you make him her love interest. What did you want to explore in the love hypothesis? What I wanted to see was, can I make this horrible guy redeemable? Can I show that underneath he's not this horrible person that everyone thinks is and that there are specific reasons why he acts the way he acts. Like, I really just wanted to play with the idea that what we show of ourselves to the people around us is actually different from what we really are. And when you dig in a little bit, you realize that he probably doesn't even realize how mean he is. The truth is that he just feels really responsible when it comes to training students. He really doesn't enjoy making other people suffer. He just is not the most socially skilled person. I started writing the fan fiction when I was still a postdoc. So I was closer to my grad student era in a way. But then when the book was published, I was a professor. So I feel like I got to experience both sides, the student side and the professor side. And, uh, you know, they're both very challenging. I mean, I just think you're incredibly empathetic in in the end to Adam's situation, which the the reality is that people who are like that, who are moody and taciturn and and a bit cruel in their supervision of students in in academic environments, actually do incredible harm. Their Mm behaviour manifests as a kind of bullying. And how many generations of PhD students have suffered that situation? And it's often, you know, young, smart scholars who have also been taught to be nasty by their previous generation of supervisors. And I think there has been a reckoning more and more. So this idea that because coming up in academia has been so hard for people who are professors now. We have to be just as hard on our grad students and we have to make them suffer like we suffered so that we can like, you know, forge better academics. So it's not something I ascribe to and I think it's uh, really bullshit. And I, I was very lucky. I had very kind mentors and if they hadn't been kind, I know that I would have stepped away from academia. I try to be that kind of mentor as well. Part of academia is that we are trained to be researchers and no one has ever taught me how to teach for example all of this stuff I had to kind of figure out myself when I became a professor we don't get enough soft skill training in your new book love on the brain which is out in a couple of months your purple haired pierced tattooed vegan heroine B I mean she's such a great character she she takes up a, a big new role leading a neuroengineering project at NASA Is there a wee bit of you in her? I'm definitely not a vegan and I don't have purple hair, though I've had purple hair in the past. (laughs) There are definitely things that I base on myself. Like, for example, Bee's very excited about being a leader, but she also feels like she doesn't know what she's doing and she second guesses herself. You know, I was writing this book right when I started being a professor and I was terrified. I just was like, I cannot... Like, I, I'm not trained for this. <laughs> I shouldn't be responsible for young minds. Uh, that's not something uh, that I, I can do. I was really, really scared. So there's definitely some of that um, that I poured into her. But I definitely also think that B is unique. Yeah, she's absolutely fabulous. And, and yeah, she has a, a major case of imposter syndrome, uh, which a lot of people <laughs> will relate to. 
So she's oh, yeah. she has landed at NASA in Houston in the middle of a major power play between two big mm-hmm. American scientific institutions, NASA being one of them. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because at face value, science looks really chummy and collaborative and friendly. You dive right into its politics and its personality and power games. Totally. When you are in academia, you realize that there is a lot of politics going on, like from department meetings and to faculty meetings, to committees, to grants. Everything is about connections and it's also about the science and doing good work. But, you know, my my third book is not out yet. And uh, I, I definitely wrote it in the year that I was part of the most, the highest number of committees uh, and things like that. And I was definitely pouring my frustration (laughs) with academia politics in that book, for sure. (laughs) And these are not serious reads. They're really delightful reads and, and suspenseful. You write sex scenes incredibly well, I have to say. And that must that's Thank a whole new you. skill under your belt. I mean, how fun was that? That is actually my second favorite compliment when people are like, I enjoyed your sex scenes. <laughs> Honestly, everything I learned about writing sex scenes, I learned from fan fiction. So once again, I would like to thank fan fiction for <laughs> for its service uh, and <laughs> for truly making me a better writer. I love writing steamy books. I call them my porny books uh, and I love it. (laughs) I love reading them too. What's it feel like knowing though that you've got friends and colleagues and and your students reading these books? I mean, you work under a nom de plume, but but do your students know it's you? Well, if they know, they haven't said anything. None of my colleagues uh, have mentioned anything. It kind of felt like it was better to keep it separate. (laughs) Part of it is that I truly spend a lot of time writing when I should be doing research (laughs) or when I feel like I should be doing research because you know how it is, right? Like in academia, you always feel like you should be productive. You know, you should be analyzing data or writing a manuscript. And sometimes I'm just, you know, writing, like you said, sex scenes or other things. And I feel kind of guilty about that, but I kind of try to keep it a little bit separate and be like, okay, I'm going to have this, you know, other career and it's going to be a different thing. And uh, it's going to be my own thing that no one knows about. I know that now the book has kind of gotten big and has sold a lot. So maybe someone has seen my picture at the end of the book and they're like, wait, is that the person who teaches neuroanatomy or... <laughs> it's my professor. Is that the person like in the office down the hallway? But so far, no one has come to me. You're kidding me. To say anything. So... Yeah, they haven't. <laughs> no. Oh, that amazes me. You better be watching. You better be watching. He shrugs, and before I know what's going on, I'm in his arms, and he's spinning me around, my legs wrapped around his waist and his hands on my thighs. I laugh. I laugh like I'm happy. What a weekend. I'm a feather. I'm invincible. I'm doing science. I'm having fun. I'm building things, useful, important things. I'm facing demons from my past. I'm bubbling, exhilarated, brave. I'm the most myself and not myself at all. I'm tightening my hands around Levi's neck. And when he slows down, I'm asking him, are you going to kiss me? 
no idea where that came from, but I'm not sorry it's out there. Your heroine in Love on the Brain has a secret too. She does, yeah. She maintains this anonymous Twitter account, which has developed this cult status, especially amongst women scientists. It's called What Would Marie Do? Mm-hmm. What does she use it for? I mean, it's so good that I actually went looking for it on Twitter to see if it was real. And if it's not real, I want to wish it into being. But tell me about it. I would love if someone like had it and used it for good. So what B does, uh, um, B is the name of the the main character. What she likes to do with that is mostly like to uplift the voices of, you know, women in STEM and women of color in STEM. B is not a woman of color, but she's aware that women in general and women, women of color especially have it much harder than, you know, white cis men in STEM and just wants to, you know, give them a safe space where they can vent and uh, exchange information that might be important and might help them in their careers. People write, what would Marie do if they, and then so what are some of the scenarios that get that people post on Twitter and ask of her account? You know, I um, am a woman in STEM and uh, even though I contributed to a specific study, I've been left out of the author lineup uh, on the manuscript uh, when the manuscript was submitted to a journal. What should I do? What would Marie Curie do? So that's, uh, you know, stuff like that. And, and that's, a, that's a bunch of stuff that comes up when you are a grad student. Like I've, this has happened to friends of mine that they have been left out of studies that they have contributed to, you know, sometimes uh, they have contributed to more than people who actually did end up in the author lineup. So the idea of uh, what would Marie do is, wouldn't it be nice if Marie Curie was here and she could mentor us, uh, uh, all of us women in STEM and tell us, uh, you know, how to be as badass as she was. Yeah, and and B has a, a serious girl crush on Marie Curie and her whole story. And and Marie sort of makes a cameo all the way throughout this book, and particularly not her, not her scientific life, but her private life. So w- what's yeah. that about? B feels the way I feel about fictional characters. Uh, she feels that about Marie Curie, right? And uh, she really. Feels uh, she knows a lot about her. She has, you know, read her biography. She knows about her scientific output, but she also knows that Marie Curie had a pretty hard life, right? And uh, um, she wants uh, to be as badass as Marie Curie was. And uh, whenever she's down and she feels like things are not going very well, B is like, wait, something similar happened to Marie. What did she do? How did she go- get through it? It's wonderful, though, because the Twitter account, you know, people really use that to full effect. And basically, Marie Curie is putting uranium in people's, I don't know, pants and, you know. Yes. <laughs> yes. Total um, radioactive sabotage, courtesy of Marie Curie. <laughs> I, yes, exactly. I mean, as we've explored, this, these rom-coms are as much a critique of scientific culture as they are, you know, lusty romantic romps and, and, and they expose sexism in science. They expose the abuse of power by senior researchers, th- those power imbalances, the vulnerability of, of junior scientists, the poverty of doing a PhD. There are romantic relationships between professors and PhD students. It's all there. And I'm wondering how delicate 
some of this stuff was to write, particularly those relationships between senior academics and PhD students. That, you know, that that's really delicate terrain, isn't it? Because that happens in labs. Absolutely. And much of it is consensual, but a lot of it isn't. And there's oh, sexual yeah. harassment. So I'm wondering how you navigated that that terrain. Right. No, 100%. And, you know, because academia is so insular and so isolated and uh, because of the specific mentor-mentee relationships that are there where, you know, younger scientists rely on older scientists and more senior scientists for their connections and for the recommendations for their careers, it really gets to a point where abuse of power is incredibly common and is incredibly easy. So, and, and there have been people who have told me, I don't feel like I can read your book because I am triggered by um, student-teacher relationships or I am triggered by the fact that he is a professor and she is a PhD student. I usually tell them, I get it. I totally get it because I have been in academia and I have seen cases in which relationships happened and they weren't fully consensual or um, in which, you know, like things felt iffy or people went back and looked back at things that happened years before and were like, yeah, actually, I don't feel like it was how it should have been. So it's really very hard to write something like that and to stay within uh, um, the boundaries of a rom-com because I definitely don't want to romanticize anything that is not fully consensual. Part of the reason why it was so cathartic to write about a professor dating a PhD student was that I was able to write it in a way that was... uh, There was a lot of wish fulfillment uh, in the sense that he always puts her first. Like she is always the one who is saying, who has the last say and who gets to say the last word. She's always the one who can, she can always say no and he's always going to respect that. And in a way, it was very cathartic to write male academic character who would always respect someone when she said no, because it's not something that is always there in real life. So that was part of why I wanted to explore a relationship in which there is a power differential that could go really, really wrong, but happens to go really, really right for these two people. But there are so many cases where it goes wrong. And uh, definitely my book is not meant to be a commentary on uh, every relationship between a student and a professor or between two people that have a power differential is is going to be consensual because that's really not true. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Adam does not teach or supervise Olive in any mm-hmm. capacity. Right. They just happen to be at the right. same university. Yeah. They happen to be in the faculty, you know, in a related faculty, but yeah. they're, not, they're not at all associated with each other, although things do get complicated. Right. I, I really wanted to make sure that he is never going to make any decision based on her career or on her opportunities. He's just not going to have a say on anything. Yeah, you end up getting them fake dating, which obviously inevitably leads to other things. But it's fascinating. But but mm-hmm. I mean, science in in science, people, especially women, talk about so-called whisper networks around particular scientists who have mm-hmm. a reputation for being serial sexual harassers of of grad students or colleagues. Yeah. You know, there are scientific conferences, there are field trips where 
those academics are yeah. in, in contact with students and they're isolated and everyone knows that nothing gets done about these people because they are powerful, they are influential, they attract a lot of money to institutions, they can make or break careers, particularly of grad students. Th- these stories are everywhere in science. Yeah. It's disturbing, isn't it? It's incredibly disturbing and frustrating. It's also frustrating that sometimes these people are exposed and still nothing gets done. Like sometimes they are in the press and then they still, you know, get to keep their positions because uh, of the way, you know, tenure is structured because of um, the way, like you said, the universities can benefit from their presence. It's incredibly frustrating. I, I want to say things are slowly changing But the truth is that even if it happens once, uh, it's once too many. It's still, you know, going to do a lot of damage. Such a delicious read. And I congratulate you for carving out such an amazing niche in the rom-com arena. Um, Congratulations. Ellie Uh, Hazelwood, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. God knows I'm going to become a rom-com fan now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if you need Rex, I'm here. I'm ready. <laughs> yep. Is science rom-com going to be my new thing? Maybe. Who knows? Ali Hazelwood's first novel, The Love Hypothesis, is published in Australia by Hachette. It's been a busy year for this debut neuroscientist novelist. She also has three novellas out and her next book, Love on the Brain is due out in August. Support your local booksellers and grab one of them then. Thanks to co-producer Lisa Needham and you can talk to me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell and tell your friends about the Science Friction Podcast. I'll catch you next week. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.